Right, well let me just remind you briefly where we've got to. I'm sure it's all at your fingertips um, and that you're ready and raring to go. But just in case one or two of you aren't, uh, let me attempt to summarise briefly what we've already seen, which I will do in the form of the diagram, this diagram. So remember, uh, there are two kingdoms. Everybody is in the common kingdom which rests on God's covenant with Noah made in chapters 8 and 9 of Genesis. There is a redemptive kingdom, uh, the covenant of grace made with Abraham. A Christian therefore would be in the redemptive kingdom but also in the larger uh, common kingdom. And we therefore all have a modified cultural mandate that we receive through that Noahic covenant uh, but only the Lord Jesus Christ is the last Adam. And I've suggested two problems with that position. First of all, that you cannot restore humanity to an Adamic status, which is what we see in Genesis 9, apart from a covenant of redemption, apart from a redemptive covenant. You can't have a common kingdom, Adam. And then secondly, uh, I've argued that we can indeed share in the Adamic work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in his decisive Adamic work, but that that should then be worked out in us. And that any works that we do where he is working that out in us are not common kingdom works, they are redemptive kingdom works. What I want to do now is to turn to make a positive case for a redemptive Noahic covenant. This is not a novel view, I should say. So many of the giants of the 17th century would have held to this position, as John Owen does, if you know his book, Biblical Theology. It's not in the big edition of his works. Um, it's been recently translated, um, and you can see it laid out in there pretty clearly. But the person I want to spend most time with is a man called Francis Roberts. And to encourage you um, to find out more about Francis Roberts, in 1657 he wrote a book called The Mystery and Marrow of the Bible. It is a 1,700-page covenant theology. And it's a really, really long, detailed, but brilliant, brilliant book covering the whole of the Bible. Um, it is an, it's an outstanding book. He was a Presbyterian theologian, though later a conformist um, under the Restoration. Um, and uh, it's an excellent, careful, thorough treatment of the unfolding of God's covenants. He defends this view uh, that the Noahic covenant is redemptive through and through. He points out it is no new or singular opinion and mentions some others before him who held to it, including, for example, William Perkins. He states his positions in the book in aphorisms, and this is the one uh, where he states the idea that God's covenant with Noah is redemptive, though interestingly, he too counts two covenants. And I'll say more about that in a moment. These two covenants of God established with Noah before and after the flood for saving Noah and his family in the ark by water from perishing with the wicked world and for preserving the world from future destruction by a general flood were a renewed discovery and administration of the covenant of faith touching sinners' salvation by Jesus Christ. So both the pre-flood and the post-flood covenants are part of what he calls the covenant of faith, which is his preferred term. He prefers that to covenant of grace. So what does that look like in terms of a diagram? Well, pretty simply, it looks like that. Um, there's a covenant of works with Adam. There's then a redemptive kingdom, if you like, using Van Drunen's language. There's a covenant of faith, which in its promissory phase has six stages in the Old Testament. The Genesis 3.15 promise, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David and the captives. And then its performative stage, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Straight line. All redemptive. Now, just pause to notice this thing about there being two covenants for Francis Roberts. It's really interesting, isn't it? And you could do all sorts of interesting charts, which I've failed to draw, um, mapping out the different possibilities. But the Klein Van Drunen non-redemptive covenant position seems to me to be harder to maintain, arguably even to be impossible to maintain, if there was only one covenant with Noah that runs through six to nine. Because that covenant starts in chapter six with the salvation of only Noah and his family from the flood. It's a salvation covenant from the outset and a particular covenant. And if it's all one covenant, you might think it would run on like that. There would be ways of avoiding that conclusion. But it would certainly be harder to maintain a non-redemptive covenant reading if you held that there was one covenant with Noah. The opposite is not true. The idea of there being two covenants with Noah does not show that one of them must be non-redemptive. And disprove Roberts' position. Roberts can happily have there being two covenants and both of them being redemptive. So what I'm saying there is I don't think the one or two question is decisive in considering the possibility that they're redemptive covenants. It may be more problematic to have one covenant for the view that it's non-redemptive. But don't worry about that if that didn't make any sense. Um, suffice to say, Roberts defends the idea there are two and they're both redemptive. Now, how does he do that? Well, there's a whole lot of rich typology in his treatment of Noah. He deals in considerable detail with the typological significance of Genesis 6 to 9, which is pretty common stock in pre-critical uh, that phrase that Stephen defined earlier, pre-critical commentators. They're all full of this typology. Not allegory, but typology. Um, it is much less evident in more recent commentaries on Genesis, uh, written by modern critical scholars, or I would argue by evangelical scholars who've been unduly influenced by them. It is recognised, interestingly, on both sides of the culture debate. So Klein, who's on the Van Drunen Two Kingdoms side, is very strong on typology in the Old Testament. But so is Roberts. Here's Roberts summing up his account of the typology. Noah, he writes, was a singular type of Christ. The ark, a figure of the church, and the temporal saving of his house with himself in the ark by water, a special type of the salvation of Christ's elect in the church by Jesus Christ. So let's just break that down a bit and take Noah first. And Roberts has seven ways in which Noah is a type of Christ. They're, most of them are pretty simple. I just want to dwell on one of them a bit longer because it's interesting. Uh, Noah brings rest. Stephen touched on that in his question earlier on. The meaning of his name. Secondly, Noah is a righteous man. Jesus is the righteous man. Thirdly, Noah is priest, prophet and king. He is, as Roberts calls him, the sole monarch of the whole earth. So is the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, he is the builder of an ark. So is the Lord Jesus Christ, the church. Fifthly, and this is the one I want to dwell on a little bit longer, he is the offerer of a sacrifice. So let's just have a little think about what happens in 8 verse 20. Then Noah built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
and so forth. Now, this is a pretty striking episode, isn't it? The sacrifices offered by Noah here hold a pivotal place in the narrative at this point. It is in response to his sacrifice, when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, that God made his promise not to curse the ground or destroy all the creatures in the flood again. Wenham points out in his commentary, this is the only reference to the Lord actually smelling a sacrifice in the Old Testament. Other people ask for him to. We read that that they are that, but this is the only reference to actually happening. And he also argues that the implication of the verse is clear, that God has been propitiated by the sacrifice. And Stefan argued this this morning in his paper. That is something that Van Drunen denies. Van Drunen says this is not a propitiatory sacrifice. Uh, It's a dedicatory sacrifice. But it seems clear here, and when you look at these kinds of sacrifices elsewhere, such as in Leviticus, that it is an atoning sacrifice. Here's Wenham's comment. The obvious implication of the sequence of the verbs, the Lord smelt said, is that God's thoughts about mankind were prompted by his appreciation of the sacrifice. So God has already shown favour to Noah by saving him, but here he shows favour to the entire human race, to all the animals, to the earth itself even, based on Noah's sacrifice. And that surely must astonish us. How could the measly sacrifice of one man, still a sinner, secure the whole world? Francis Roberts rightly asks, how could Noah's burnt offerings pacify God or afford any sweet savour to God. Well, here, surely, we must connect through to the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture itself makes the connection, doesn't it, when it refers to the sacrifice of Christ as a sweet-smelling sacrifice, using in the Septuagint the same phrase in Ephesians 5, verse 2. Roberts explains how Noah's sacrifices could have their effect. Not in and of themselves, he writes, for the bodies of beasts burnt of themselves send forth an offensive savour, which is true. Not not that I go around burning animals, but um, you know if you burn food, it smells bad. It's not a sweet-smelling thing. It's an odd way to describe it. Not from any merit of Noah, for though he was righteous, yet his righteousness was of faith, not of works. Come back to that later. And he was subject to sinful frailties. How then? Only as types of Christ's death for our sins. That sacrifice of sacrifices which was the substance, end and scope of all the sacrifices under the Old Testament. This was the sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Here then is a connection between this sacrifice in 8 verse 20 which lies at the heart of what happens afterwards and what is promised afterwards in the rest of chapter 8 and through chapter 9, here then, at the heart of that, is this sacrifice which connects us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption. The redemptive sacrifice. Pivotal in the Noahic covenant. The second one, should you so enumerate them. Sixthly, 
Roberts tells us, as Noah sent out a dove after the storm, this is rather beautiful, so Jesus Christ, the terrible storm and tempest of his passion and death for our sin being over, sends forth his Holy Spirit, sometimes appearing in the form of a dove, the author of comfort, peace and joy in the hearts of his people, witnessing with their spirits that they are God's children, that their sins are pardoned, their peace with God is concluded, and the flood of his wrath is forever turned away. And then seventhly, as Noah's sons go out to fill the earth, so Roberts writes, Jesus Christ is the restorer of the whole world, dissipated, scattered, broken, cursed and ruined for man's sin by the flood of God's wrath, redeeming, preserving and propagating his church throughout the whole world, restoring and ordering all creatures for the good of his church. In other words, the very Adamic task that Noah is given in chapter 9, is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a type of Christ, that chapter 9 work. So these are things which Klein identifies with the second covenant, which he makes a non-redemptive covenant. But it is precisely things in that covenant too that are typological of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 6, 7, 8 and 9. So Roberts draws his conclusion from this extensive, and I've radically abbreviated it, typology of Noah. He asks, how can we but conclude that God's covenant with Noah, covenants with Noah, were intended for an administration of the covenant of faith, touching sinners' recovery by Jesus Christ? He cites lots of other typology as well. For example, there's a section on the ark as a type of the church. I just want to say a little bit more about one bit of it which is where he articulates various ways in which the salvation of Noah, his family, and the creatures from the flood was a type of the salvation of the church from the deluge of the divine wrath. He says their salvation anticipates baptism. Well, you see that in 1 Peter 3, don't you? The justifying power of the blood of Christ to wash away sin. The sanctifying work of the Spirit of Christ, identified, of course, as water in John's Gospel. All these things typified by the salvation given to them through the water. And he even describes in one passage how salvation in the ark with Noah was a type of salvation by the incarnation and the penal substitutionary work of Christ. He doesn't use that phrase to describe it, of course. The key here is Noah going into the ark with his people. This, Robert says, is a type of Christ entering the condition of his people. Here's how he describes it. And again, I've cut some bits out of this passage but it will give you a flavour of it. They that were saved in the ark were saved therein with Noah, who forsook his own habitation to dwell with them in the ark, and with them to be tossed up and down with winds and waves, that they might be saved with him. So they that are saved in the ark of the church are saved by Christ's gracious and powerful presence. Therefore Christ himself left his heavenly throne for a while and entered solemnly into the church by baptism and therein dwelt with us, exposing himself to all storms and tempests, waves and billows, rocks and dangers of affliction and persecution, etc., to save us from them. He was tossed with us on our sea, that we might anchor with him in his haven. He was involved in our curse, that he might impart to us his blessedness. He was condemned for our crimes, that we might be cleared by his condemnations. Thus Christ endangers himself with us for our safety. And so he asks again, 
Therefore God's covenant with Noah thus to save him and his in the ark by water was for substance the covenant of faith for saving sinners by Jesus Christ. Surely it must have been. Now maybe you think at that point, hmm, this therefore is just a bit too strong. Therefore it must have been a saving covenant. I don't buy the therefore. Maybe you're wondering, these things that happened to Noah simply typified spiritual realities to be given to others later on, but not to Noah in this covenant. Come back to that possibility in a moment. I want to look just briefly at other biblical uses of Noah, or some of them anyway. So, second piece of evidence here. We're here. References to Noah outside Genesis in redemptive contexts. This is not comprehensive. But it's interesting that when you start looking for Noah elsewhere in the Bible, you find him connected to the realities of redemption. Isaiah 54, the Lord comforts Israel by affirming that he's only deserted her for a brief moment. His love will not depart from her again. And he draws a parallel with the days of Noah. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. So the covenant with Noah illustrates God's redemptive dealings with Israel. Again, it's the preservation promise, isn't it, that's in view here. It's Klein's second covenant that's being used here as an example connected to this redemptive pledge to Israel. Then there's also the rainbow in scripture as well. In Ezekiel 1.28, part of Ezekiel's vision of the glory of the Lord, the glory that indwells the temple, that departs from the temple, that will return to fill the new temple in chapter 43. Again, a redemptive reality. It's a symbol that the rainbow of God's redemptive presence. It's picked up later in Revelation 4 and Revelation 10 as well. This extraordinary idea that God sees the world, if you like, through a rainbow. Again then, the rainbow connected to realities of redemption. Chapter 9 again. So, typology. Secondly, other uses in the Old Testament and New Testament. Thirdly, I want to come back to this question I mentioned just a moment ago. A possible response to all of this material, both to the typology and to these examples of other references to Noah, would be to say that the redemptive aspect was only present for the later generation. That is to say, redemption was in the antitype, not in the type. Noah's covenant relation to God typified a later redemption, but did not itself contain those redemptive realities. I'm trying to, to, to work with a sort of Klein van Drunen reading here and think, how, how could you answer this use of it later on? I think that's what you'd have to say. You'd have to say, well, yes, these things functioned as types of these realities. Yes, these things were cited as examples of similar things elsewhere in the Bible, but for Noah there and then, it was still a common kingdom covenant. It was just taken up and used that way elsewhere. So the promise of preservation was a suitable illustration of God's later redemptive faithfulness, but it was not a promise of redemption to Noah himself. Vitzius, interestingly, another great covenant theologian, allows that the reference in Isaiah 54 might not require complete continuity with the covenant of grace. Here's how he puts it. 
He's making what I've, the point I've just been explaining as a possible answer. God does not declare that the covenant made with the church was in every respect of the same nature with that universal covenant, which secured the world from being destroyed by a deluge. He only runs the parallel between both with respect to permanence and stability. In other words, it's illustrating just a very particular point. It's not connecting the whole of the realities of redemption to Noah. It's just saying, look, this, this feature of what happened with Noah can illustrate this feature of what happens in redemption over here. That doesn't mean that that is also redemptive. So the rainbow might be a suitable illustration of redemption, but not a sign of redemption to Noah himself. Purely illustrative, without being itself redemptive. Now let me tell you what my problem is with this possible argument that might come in reply to the typology and to the other references. I don't think that's how the New Testament teaches us to read the Old Testament. And I don't think it's how it teaches us to read the Old Testament types in particular. The argument, I think, has a vestige of truth in it. Namely, the point that the types themselves, boats and rainbows and things, don't contain redemptive power. All of the redemptive efficacy is in Christ, the antitype. Yes, think of the sacrifices. They don't contain redemptive power, those Old Testament sacrifices. The redemptive efficacy is in Christ and his sacrifice. But that does not mean that the redemptive reality was not given with the type. Just because the type didn't contain the power, it doesn't mean the redemptive reality was not given with the type. Take Moses as an example. Moses, as a prophet, was a type of Christ, Deuteronomy 18. Where's the prophetic power? It's in Christ. Do we therefore conclude that the Mosaic administration was not a real redemption? No, we don't. Think of the high priest, a type of Christ, or his sacrifices. Do they have inherent power to take away sin? No. We know it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin from Hebrews 10. Do we conclude then that there was no reality of forgiveness communicated through that Old Testament sacrificial system? No, we don't. So too with Noah. At one level, of course, the ark was just a big wooden box. The flood was just water. The rainbow was light refracted through water. Is that right, scientists? Somebody help me. Um, And so forth and so forth. But we don't conclude that all these physical phenomena, which were merely physical, were separated from the spiritual realities that they typified. Now, why don't we conclude that? Well, I don't conclude that because of passages like 1 Corinthians 10, which seem to me to say something rather different from that. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed, followed them and the rock was Christ. Okay, now, in other words, yes, the people passed through some water Yes, they ate manna. Yes, they drank water. But, Paul tells us, they were baptised into Moses. They ate spiritual food and drank, not just water, but Christ. So the physical realities 
in that covenant were not just symbols of spiritual realities that would be given later to other people but were not given to them. No, they received the spiritual realities under the temporal realities. It's a passage about the sacraments, isn't it? That's why Paul goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper in the next section. Sacramental theology and biblical typology are quite closely related in this way, I think. In a Calvinist view of the sacraments, the elements don't change, but the spiritual realities that they symbolise are given with them when they are received by faith. So to here. The ark, it's an ark. The flood is a flood, the rainbow is a rainbow. But the spiritual realities of redemption that they typified, I would argue, should be believed to have been given with them as well. Yes, there were real temporal benefits in this covenant, the continuity of seasons, reproduction, dominion over the physical creation, flesh for food, etc., etc. But as Roberts puts it, under temporals explicitly covenanted, spirituals were implicitly intended and comprised. And there's the key. Not just intended for a, a day, thousands of years in the future, but comprised here and now for them. Owen states this principle of Old Testament interpretation succinctly. He writes this, It is certainly true that in the Genesis passage, the promise refers primarily to the things of this life. And the sign itself is the covenantal sign of a temporal blessing. But nevertheless, spiritual grace, or the love of God freely given to the faithful, is chiefly intended. For such was the economy of that period until Christ was manifested in the flesh, that all these things should be a shadow of good things to come, Hebrews 10.1, of which Christ is the high priest, Hebrews 9.11. In other words, it may well boil down to a hermeneutical issue, to how you read Old Testament types, because it seems crystal clear that the, that the things described in Genesis 8, end of, and 9 are types of Christ and of redemption. It then becomes a hermeneutical question. Do you think they include those realities or exclude them? And at that point, I think it, it touches almost on some of the questions we were talking about earlier. What weight do you put on the details of the text? Um, what do you find in these details? How much reality do they carry with them? I noticed that Pink, in his book on the covenants, when he defends this reading of um, the Noahic covenant, which he does with similar arguments to everybody else, um, clearly thinks the alternative reading is a, is a dispensationalist reading. The stage is chopped up and separated so that the realities of the later stage are not present at the earlier stage. Food for thought. I'm not saying anybody who thinks that is a dispensationalist. Uh, but it does certainly highlight it as a hermeneutical question about how much of this reality is communicated in the type. I would suggest, therefore, that you would need very weighty reasons to conclude that Noah is an exception to this pattern of typology where the reality comes with the sign. What might such reasons be? And this brings us to point number four. There are two features of the Noahic Covenant that I suspect provide such reasons for many of us. And we've touched on this already in the questions a bit. They are first, it's universality. And second, it's unconditional and unbreakable character. You can see how the argument would run. If the covenant is universal, 
and cannot fail, it's unbreakable, it cannot fail to include someone, then how could it possibly be a redemptive covenant, given that not all are saved? Well, I think there's more to be said here about this matter. And I want to take us to two terms, flesh, balsar, and offspring, tzarak, which will help us grasp the nature of the universality, I think, the right nature of the universality of the Noahic covenant. Our passage in 6 to 9 speaks repeatedly of all flesh, doesn't it? You'll have noticed this when we read it this morning. It speaks of all flesh, interestingly, both in the run-up to the flood, in explaining human evil, and then in the flood narrative, and then in the covenant after it. The description can mean different things. All flesh can refer, it seems, just to human beings. So, for example, 6 verse 12, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Because it refers to sin, I take it as referring to human flesh. At other points, it seems to refer only to animals. 6.19 Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So the context would have to determine whether the universal all flesh language is talking about all animals or all people or both. Now, given that for some of the reasons I've already shown you in the typology and the later use of the passage, I feel inclined to argue that this covenant with Noah is redemptive and therefore, according to the logic I just explained, I might have a problem with the universal language. I could say, try to argue, all flesh, when it's talking about God's covenant with all flesh, is only talking about all the animals. It's not talking about all the people. Okay, and try to get the people out of the universality box. But you can't do that. Um, because it's not what the text says. Um, have a look at 9.17 in particular, which seems to me to be conclusive. Here we are at the climax of the narrative. At the end of it, here's a summary statement. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That, to my mind, is an inclusive statement of all animal and all human flesh. Summing up all those who've been described so far in different parts of the passage. And it's all the more interesting than that, isn't it? Because it doesn't just talk about them being beneficiaries of the covenant. Because that would be another possible way out, given a commitment to this covenant being redemptive, a possible way out of the universality, wouldn't it? They're not all parties, they're all beneficiaries. God didn't make this covenant with them, they just happened to benefit from it. That would allow you to stop it being a universal, every human being covenant. But again, the text does not allow that. The repetition, especially of the Hebrew preposition, bain, which we get there in that verse, that clearly stands against such an argument, between me and between all flesh. This is a standard way of indicating the two parties involved in an agreement. So we can't say they're just beneficiaries. They're, they're described there as parties. You see that again if you want another example in 26 verse 28 or you see it in 2 Samuel 21 7. So the Lord and really, really all flesh, human and animal, are identified as the parties to this covenant. Even more, 9 verse 13, 
a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It is a universal covenant indeed. As even Francis Roberts puts it, this covenant in some sort concerns all the world. And you might think that's going to be pretty hard to square with the idea of it being a redemptive covenant. Well, feel the tension. All the typology is pointing you toward it being redemptive. The other references are pointing you toward it being redemptive. Not only in 6 and 7 and the first part of 8, but from 8.21 through 9. All used that way later on. But here we find universal language making it hard to see how it could be redemptive given that not all are saved. How can we understand this? I suggest that the seed offspring language will help us. Obviously it's used of plants and animal offspring. But when it is used to refer to human offspring in the Pentateuch, it usually refers to people within the redemptive line. Before Noah, of course, we've already seen it. Promise about the offspring. Seth, the father of the redemptive line, born to replace the godly Abel. After Noah, it comes up again and again um, in the promises to the patriarchs. It's at the heart of the promises of chapter 17 again and again and again in chapter 17 and elsewhere. The seed offspring language is used to men in the redemptive line about their descendants. It is language that comes therefore overwhelmingly as part of the covenant of grace. As too is the language of multiplication and filling the earth. When you look at that use of that in the rest of Scripture, 17 again, 22, 26. To redemptive patriarchs about their descendants. So, that's interesting, isn't it? We've got perhaps two strands of evidence. We've got all flesh language, which we would think means everybody, everybody. And then we've got this offspring language, which normally is describing the redemptive line. And we've got the blessing multiplying language which describes the redemptive line elsewhere. So the covenant again we might be feeling is both universal common because of the all flesh language but on the other hand particular redemptive because of the seed multiplication language. So how do we square all of that? Typology, other uses of Noah, seed, multiplying, blessing, that all suggests redemptive. All flesh stops us thinking it's got to be redemptive, doesn't it? Because it's, everybody's in it, it seems. How can we understand this, I wonder? Well, I wonder if the animals can help us, quite like in Narnia. So come to Narnia for a moment and let's ask the animals for some help. Seems to me the animals provide an excellent example of different ways of being in this covenant. Remember, they are parties to it. It's with them. So we can't just say they're beneficiaries. They're parties to it. But let's just think about their being parties to it. And I mentioned this to Stephen earlier, and he said, be careful, because they do choose to go into the ark. So some of them do kind of animal-like consent of going into the ark. But they're not really sentient, self-conscious, willing creatures in the way that the partners to a covenant normally are. And certainly the later animals don't do that, because they're just born under this covenant the ones after the flood. They're not consenting. They are what we might term passive parties to the covenant. Born in it. It's also important to notice 
what do they get from it? They get the promise of preservation, but they don't get some of the other things promised in the covenant. For example, the animals are not given rule over the animals in the way that Noah is. They're not given the animals as flesh to eat in the way that Noah is. So they don't get the promises of 9 verse 2 and 9 verse 3. So it seems then that the animals are excluded from the provisions of the covenant while being parties to the covenant. So they stand in the narrative, and this is why I say the animals can help us like a Narnia, because they stand in the narrative as examples of parties to the covenant who are nonetheless passive and partial parties to the covenant. They don't consent, and not all the promises are given to them. And I wonder if, as we stare at this seemingly conflicting evidence about the nature of the covenant, though the weight of it very much, I would say, is on the re- way on the redemptive side, but as we try to understand the old flesh thing alongside all of this evidence for it being redemptive, if they, if they may not help us. May they not help us to understand how every human being can be in this covenant, and I don't just mean a beneficiary, because it's with all flesh, between me and between all flesh. Every human being can be in this covenant, yet it can still be at its heart a redemptive covenant. Because as with the animals, there are people who are passive and partial parties to the covenant. They're born as parties to it, without consenting and without sharing in its full benefits. Is that not, I ask, the condition of an unbeliever? He is born within the preservation promise. But he may not have heard of it, and he doesn't believe it. But he doesn't receive the redemptive Adamic dominion that is promised in this very chapter, chapter 9, which typifies the redemption that we have in Christ. He doesn't receive the benefits of the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ in full. He receives only some benefits. So I would say that the Noahic covenant is not a covenant that can be reduced to common grace, but it is a covenant that grounds common grace. And that, I think, is an important distinction because there's a whole school, especially of Dutch theology in the 20th century, associated with Herxema and other figures like that, who argue what looks like a similar, or I argue, a position that looks quite similar to theirs, that the covenant with Noah is a redemptive covenant. But that, for them, is part of an anti-common grace project. Common grace is bad and must be expunged from theology. It's part of their war with Kuiper at that point. Okay. And I'm not going there. I, I, I've read one of their commentaries on Genesis and find it very helpful in showing that this covenant is redemptive. But I don't think you can take the step of saying there's no common grace in it because it's a covenant with all flesh for preservation. So I would say it mustn't be reduced to a common grace covenant, which is what Van Drunen does with 8 and 9, but it is a covenant that grounds common grace. Now, does that mean in some sense, fifthly, it is a breakable and bilateral covenant? This is the point. None of you are even flinching when I say that. You can tell if we were in America, there'd be sort of fires being kindled at the back of the room. Um, this is, this, is, this is hot stuff. Okay. Is it breakable? Is it bilateral? Well, you definitely don't want to say it's bilateral in certain senses, do you? 
But I would argue that there is evidence in the text that this is a bilateral and breakable covenant. Put simply, the promise never to flood the earth again stands regardless of human response. The promise of redemption requires a human response. The covenant at its heart, therefore, at its deepest level, its redemptive level, is a bilateral covenant. All animals and humans are born within the preservation promise, which is unbreakable, but to possess the full benefits of the covenant, the redemptive benefits carried in its typology, a response was needed. Now, let me just be clear about this, in case anyone in America ever listens to it, uh, that the term bilateral is ambiguous in writing on covenant theology. Because I want to be clear in what sense I'm not saying it's bilateral. For some, bilateral implies equal partnership. Taken thus, no covenant of God with his people is bilateral. For others, bilateral implies that there are meritorious conditions to be kept by man. Conditions for humans to fulfil synergistically, working in cooperation with God. Again, let me be clear. No covenant of God with his people is bilateral in that sense. But it is possible to use the word bilateral, and I've got no particular attachment to the word. If you want to tell me afterwards, just bin the word and call it something else, that's fine. But I think it's possible to use the word bilateral, and certainly historically it has been used this way, simply to indicate a covenant that includes non-meritorious conditions that must be fulfilled for somebody to receive its benefits. Conditions which have already been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ in his atoning work. In that sense, all I mean by saying it's bilateral is you have to repent and believe to receive its benefits. And if you do, that too is the work of God. In that sense, I would say the Noahic covenant, indeed the covenant of grace in all its administrations, may safely be termed bilateral. All it's saying is you have to repent and believe. So I would agree with John Murray's analysis of this covenant insofar as he says it's monogistic, but disagree with his insistence that there are no conditions for man in it. And I think we see the conditions in Genesis 9, 1 to 17. This text, this section, is routinely divided up by critics, not according to their source theories, because they assign it all to P, uh, but because they think the word covenant is missing from verses 1 to 7. James Barr, for example, says uh, about this absence of covenant from 1 to 7 that it contrasts starkly with the situation in verses 8 to 18. And so he wants to separate the two sections. But actually, while they are distinct, I would argue they must not be separated. Really, what we find here is a statement in each section of the obligations of God in this covenant, the obligations of man in this covenant. And that's expressed in the Hebrew with some standard phrasing for expressing double obligations. Verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 9, now behold, I Myself. Va'ani hinani. Behold, I myself do establish my covenant. Now, if you were to go to Genesis 17, verses 4 and 9 in the Hebrew, and you can see it in English as well. Behold, my covenant is with you. Verse 4, verse 9. As for you. 
you would see the same thing referred to there. If you're looking at the ESV, I've quoted from the ASV, in which it's a bit clearer. It sticks a bit closer to the Hebrew than the ESV does at this point. Stephen Mason has written an interesting article on this, in which he argues that this is the patterning of a covenant with the two sides expressed, as you see there in Genesis 17. He says it's a common construction in the Hebrew Bible used to demarcate the responsibilities of two parties within a single direct discourse. So there are human obligations here in this covenant. And writers from different perspectives acknowledge this. Gentry and Wellam, for example, Williamson and others would all say the same thing. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because as soon as you have human conditions you have to ask the question, well then, could it then be broken? Could you fail to fulfil the conditions? And I think it should be clear from the framework I've laid out that in one sense it's unbreakable. The animals, for instance, couldn't choose to break it. An unbeliever could never put himself outside its promise of preservation. But at another level, it definitely is breakable. A human being can indeed fail to participate in the full redemptive blessings of the covenant if he doesn't believe. Faith, in other words, is necessary in the Noahic covenant. Hence the example of Noah as a man of faith in Hebrews 11. By contrast, the children of Noah do not possess the full privileges of the covenant because they don't believe. Now, this is not just a... a, um, a deduction. You can see this in the text with the declension that comes with Noah's boys. So here, if you came expecting Noah's boys, here's the Noah's boys bit. Finally. 9 verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons as he blessed Adam and Eve in 128. Gave them dominion as he had given dominion to Adam. We don't have to read far ahead before we get to the sin of Ham against Noah. 9, 20 to 27. What happens when Ham sins against Noah? His own son Canaan is no longer blessed but is cursed by Noah and evidently also by God. He will not now be in a position of rule, Adamic rule, but of slavery. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So the sin of Ham on this reading is a rebellion against the covenant of grace punished by a withdrawing of the outward privileges of that covenant. This is how John Owen understood it. He describes a period of 40 years during which the revived and purified church lived in purity. After that, the sin of Ham struck at the very foundation of the then current theology, he writes. That is of the family church, its obedience and worship. The sin against Noah, he says, was the occasion of Ham's long-concealed hypocrisy breaking visibly forth and resulting in a great scandal in the church. And the curse on Canaan? Owen describes as an ecclesiastical reform. It may lose something in translation. <laughs> so Noah's boys then, well, they make sense in the pattern of Genesis, don't they, with this repeated narrowing that happens. Abel, Seth, not Cain. Noah's line, not Lamech's other children. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau, etc., etc. How do we understand that? Can somebody go from being within the covenant of grace, this redemptive covenant, to being outside it? Can salvation be lost? Well, obviously not. 
But as Robertson argues, someone who breaks the covenant breaks it by profession and outwardly. They actually only ever enjoyed its outward provisions, not its inward reality. We know because of the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, a Bible text-based doctrine, that you can't lose your salvation if you possess it inwardly. But here we see an example of somebody who you would have looked at and said they possessed it, seemingly even its redemptive promises, but who then loses it when their sin is revealed and they're put outside the church. So Robert speaks of a double salvation, outward and corporal or inward and spiritual. True salvation is not lost, but the covenant is broken. Now maybe you bulk at this because you look at Genesis 9.16 and you see God saying, remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. You think, well, an everlasting covenant can't be broken. Well, that's not what we read in Isaiah 24, verse 5, where we read that the people of the earth have broken the everlasting covenant. So then, I would suggest that this covenant with Noah in 6, 7, 8 and 9 typifies redemptive realities, is later used as an illustration of redemptive realities because it is a redemptive covenant for the people there and then. That there is a holy seed of Noah in it, in full, enjoying all of its redemptive promises and realities. But some who do not believe, who do not respond with that condition of the covenant, are put out of that covenant in a process of ecclesiastical discipline. That's what we see happening with Ham and Canaan. Interestingly, Meredith Klein argues that bit too. Even Klein thinks it's a, that they're breaking the covenant of grace. Now, what difference does all of this make? Let me make some concluding remarks about application. First of all, for preaching Noah. What does Noah add if you're preaching through Genesis, for example? If you're expounding Genesis sequentially and you come to this part what have you not had before that you have now? If you're doing covenant theology, what do you find in this administration of the covenant of grace that you don't find in previous ones? Many things. Let me just flag a few. The name covenant used explicitly for the first time. A further narrowing of the parties to Noah and his seed. A universal blessing of preservation. The foundation, yes, of universal common grace. Not of a common kingdom, not of Christians doing things in the way non-Christians do, but yes, common grace. A strong oath and a sign attached to it. Vivid typology of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacraments, etc., etc. I mean, and you find a whole theology, don't you, really? Christology, atonement, ecclesiology, sacramentology, eschatology, it's all here in these chapters. Doesn't it make you want to go away and preach a whole series on Noah for the next year, just unpacking it all? But also you find, secondly, warning. The story of Noah's family provides ample warning, especially for our seed. It was possible for Ham to be cut out of the church, and it can happen in our day too. This is a story of the church, I've argued, which therefore warns the church. And it's even the case that Noah's own sin afforded the opportunity for his son's sin, which is a very, dare I say, sobering thought. Secondly, well, what about the scope of Christian obedience? And I want to suggest the idea of the Adamic believer. Not the Adamic non-Christian in the common kingdom, but the Adamic believer. 
Noah is an example of faith, not just up to 8 verse 20 where he stops being that and becomes common kingdom Noah, but all the way through his story when he functions as a new Adam in chapter 9. So this reading renders the whole story useful to the believer's life as a believer. If chapter 9 is about a redemptive call for Noah, then all of his earth subduing work was done as a redeemed creature. It was part of his obedience to Jesus as Lord in the redemptive covenant, not just part of his obedience to God in the common kingdom Noahic covenant. All of life is therefore part of Christian living. Our dominion is not something that is exercised somewhere else apart from the covenant of grace under some other administration. Palmer Robertson puts it like this. The explicit repetition of these creation mandates in the context of the covenant of redemption expands the vistas of redemption's horizons. Redeemed man must not internalise his salvation so that he thinks narrowly in terms of soul-saving deliverance. To the contrary, redemption involves his total lifestyle as a social, cultural creature. But, you may say, hold on a minute, have we not just lost the very thing that David Van Drunen is concerned to protect? Have we not just lost the spirituality of the church? So let me just think briefly, lastly, with you about how to protect, how not to protect the spirituality of the church. How do we protect the integrity of the church and her mission? Because you may feel I've left a vacuum. The force of this argument is that the two kingdoms theology as it's expressed in Van Drunen's works, if this reading of Noah is right that I've given you, does not stand. There may be another way of doing it, but it doesn't work that way. Does that therefore remove the protection which it provides for the spirituality of the church? The two kingdoms theology claims to provide a biblical foundation for distinguishing the redemptive kingdom from the common and thus protecting the proper work of the church. Without it, should we cancel our sermons and replace them with Christian art classes? I'm glad you didn't laugh because it's sadly believable. If this foundation doesn't stand, do we obey as many Adams? Well, I think we do. But does that mean that we have to threaten the work of the church and that it must be replaced by the social gospel? I don't think so. Because it seems to me that actually Reformed theology historically contains within it already the protections that it needs for the church's work. I am persuaded at once that Christians can and will transform societies, and I know that takes you to other eschatological questions, but I'm persuaded that Christians can and will transform societies, and that the tasks and weapons of the church, of the institutional church, are spiritual. It seems to me that we need just to remember a few things which have been articulated in the history of Reformed theology to protect the spirituality of the church, whilst maintaining that possibility of societal transformation. Here they are. First of all, the distinction between the church as an institution and the church as an organism. Secondly, the distinction between the individual Christian and the corporate church. Thirdly, the distinction between the presbyteral and the diaconal functions of church offices. The example of Acts 6 being crucial here. And lastly, the distinction between the church's care for its members and Christians' care 
for their neighbours. I would have thought if we maintain those distinctions, we don't need a non-redemptive Noahic covenant to protect the spirituality of the church.